Good morning. Before we get started, I want, I want to frame, once again, I do this regularly, maybe you get tired of it, I want to frame in our minds what we are doing when we gather together, and I stand up here and give what to the ordinary person might be a speech, right? It might just be a talk that one is giving, or maybe even a, a lecture about a particular passage of Scripture. But we are convinced with Christians throughout history, that the reading and the preaching of God's Word is actually effective for those who hear with faith. Like in the midst of this, the Spirit of God is active and working in you and me as we hear this Word to change us into His likeness. So just frame that in our minds, that something supernatural is going on with the reading of the Word and the preaching of God's Word. And be, be confident that God is going to to do something in the midst of it. Let's pray and give thanks to God for that. God, we do thank you that the effectiveness of this time is not up to me or to us or any one of us, but it is up to you and your spirit. And so we pray that you would give us ears to hear, you should give us faith to believe, that you would change us into your likeness more and more each day that we would grow deeper in love with you, that we would grow deeper in our faith and understanding of who you are. Do this through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We continue this morning in our introduction to the book of John. We began that two weeks ago as we looked at John 1, 1 through 5. We've said that this is an introduction to the book, verses 1 through 18 in particular, are the prologue, the introduction. And so last time we saw, we were looking, what then is this book about according to these first 18 verses? And we saw in the first five verses that this book is about the promises of God throughout the Old Testament Scriptures. So this phrase, in the beginning was the Word, is not just a throwaway connection back to the Old Testament. Rather, John is saying this book is about that one who has been promised. It's about this king who has been promised from long ago, from the very beginning, this king who would come and destroy his enemies and gather to himself a faithful people. We said also that this book is about the word, the eternal word, this word which is God, which has always been God. And we said finally that this book is about the triumph of the light over the darkness. That though the darkness tries to overcome the light, it will not succeed, but God's promises will succeed. And today we learn more about this word. Really, verses 1 through 18 are all about the word. It's all about this one, this promised one who is coming. John is is drawing back the curtains And the one who stands in the spotlight is the Word. This is about Him. It's all about Him. This is is where your hope must lie. This is where your joy is found. This is where you must put your trust in this one. And in particular, in these verses, we see that the Word is making His entrance into the world. And we see the response He receives. If you wanted to have a a sermon theme, uh, one sentence or two sentences, what is this passage about? Jesus, the eternal word, has come into the world. 
and he brings people to a crossroads. They are brought to this point where they must either receive him or reject him. As far as I know, everyone in this room is a professing believer except for the children in the room, but I shouldn't presume, right? We shouldn't presume that someone is perhaps not deceived. And so I would appeal to you. How have you responded when you have come to this crossroads? At the arrival of Jesus Christ, kids, teenagers, at the, the arrival of Jesus Christ, how have you responded to Jesus? How have you responded to this word? We might think that it's, it could be you know, three, four different ways you might respond. No, it is either a rejection or a reception. Either you have received him or you have rejected him. You also have family and friends, I'm sure, who have not received Jesus. They stand perhaps at a crossroads. Maybe they think they can ignore him, put off this, this confrontation, this crossroads. And yet they too must respond to this eternal word. Well, you see on your bulletin, the, the title of this sermon is, Where Did Your Faith Come From? And if you are... If you don't like that because you like good grammar, from where does your faith come? Or from whence does your faith come? Where does it come from? Have you ever given thought to that question? How, why did you believe in Jesus Christ when you came to this crossroads? Why did you believe and your neighbor three doors down has ignored Christ or has not responded, has not received him but rejected him? What is it in you that, that has caused that? Or we might ask this of people you know who are unbelievers. Have some, put somebody in your mind right now who is an unbeliever. And maybe you've shared the gospel with them, you've witnessed to them, but to no avail. If he or she is to get faith, where will that faith come from? How is it going to happen? Have you thought about those things? Will it just come from you being a winsome enough witness? Or being clear enough? Or being persuasive enough or appealing to their emotions enough, how will they come to faith? Hopefully we'll arrive at some answers from our text this morning. We'll follow the text in our sermon and we'll have just these three main points. It's really about this contrast between the rejection of the word and the reception of the word. But We have the witness to the word in verses 6 through 9. We have the rejection of the word verses 10 and 11, and we have the reception of the word, verses 12 and 13. Notice, though, the first point here, the witness of the word. Notice in verses 6 through 9 that the word, this word, this eternal word, is qualitatively different than this one who is sent from God. You see that? The man named John is not one who was. In other words, at the beginning, it says, in the beginning was the word. That, that word was just speaks to his eternal existence. He simply exists. He simply has existed from all eternity. And a different word is used here of John. He came from God. He was not one who has been in existence for all eternity. Rather, he was sent from God. He himself was not the light. Rather, he was a witness who came to bear witness he had a particular role and job to bear witness about the light with a particular goal. Belief. First time 
Faith is mentioned here in John, and yet we'll see it over and over and over and over again. This word faith, coming to faith in Jesus. It includes not simply belief in facts, but trust in a person. Not simply understanding what the claims are and assenting to those claims, but actually investing yourself in this person, resting in him. And what is required with a witness? A response is required. John comes as a witness and it requires a response from those who hear him. And we're still thinking about the Old Testament here, right? This is not, again, unconnected from the Old Testament prophecies about this forerunner who would come and prepare the way for the Lord. This is the one. We'll give more attention to that later as we see references to Isaiah in later verses. But just note, John is this one preparing the way of the Lord. And not only does the Word have a witness, the Word Himself is a witness to Himself. He is the light. He is a revelation to every human being. You see that in verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. A more perhaps literal translation is He was, that same word, He was the true light which shines on every man coming into the world. John modifies the word light with true. He is the true light. That means anything in the Old Testament that spoke of this Messiah to come as the light which would give light into the darkness, the light to the nations, any light that we had seen previously was simply pointing to this one true light. He is the true light. But what does this mean, this phrase, enlightening every man? Maybe your version says that. He was the true light, enlightening every man. We have to make a decision. What does that mean? And we have a few different options. Does it mean he gives hope to every man? He, He enlightens every man. He gives light to every man. Does it mean Jesus comes and gives hope to every man? Does it mean he gives understanding to every man? He he enlightens every man so that they understand who he is. Or third, and this is what I think it means, he shines in such a way that he gives revelation to every man. He shines on every man in, in this way. He exposes the person and character of every man in his coming. This is why they're, they're brought to a crossroads. As Jesus is coming into the world, he exposes what is man. Because he himself is the revelation from God, how a person responds to him exposes who that person is in relation to God. Whether he loves the light or whether he rejects the light and loves the darkness. When's the last time you've been to a a sporting event of some kind? Uh, My family and I got to go to the Mudcats game on several occasions. And one of my and the kids' favorite parts of the game is the fan cam. The fan cam, right? The, The camera during different breaks goes to different people in the stadium and puts them up on this big screen. You're there for everybody to see. And it's funny to see the different reactions, isn't it? How do people react? So you might not realize it, but I seem like a kind of quiet guy, and I am typically, but when the fan cam comes on, boy, I jump up, and I'm ready to dance with my kids. We're doing the 
the floss, and we're doing all kinds of dances. You people are sometimes silly. They're sometimes fun. And sometimes, though, they're very afraid and shy, right? They just clam up. It's interesting how the fan cam shows the different character of different people. It shows who they are. It exposes who they are. Maybe a better illustration would be a spotlight, right? Because this is, this is the light shining on an individual. Imagine if you're in that stadium and just this huge spotlight came on one individual person. How would they respond in that particular moment? Well, the Word shines His spotlight on each and every individual, right? At His coming, He shines down on every man, and who they are is revealed by how they react in that moment, how they respond to Him, particularly how each person stands in relation to God. So not only their character, but how they stand in relationship to God. How you respond to Jesus reveals your relationship with God. It reveals what is in you. What does the shining of the word reveal about you? How have you responded to the word? And and we see that, actually. Before Before you get to the point of your reception of the word, we actually see the response of every human when the light shines on them. We've seen the witness of the word. Now we'll get to the two kinds of responses. First, the rejection of the word. Notice this passage is full of contrasts. John versus the light. John who is not the light versus the light. The word and that which is made by the word, but the world doesn't know him. The rejection and reception, and there is even more at the end of the passage when we get to this, this idea of birth, this, these, re, these contrasts throughout the passage. But notice the rejection of the word in verses 10 and 11. He, this word, was in the world, and the world was made by him. Notice again the identification of Jesus, the word, with this creator. He is He created. He was in the world and the world was made by him. But, here's the contrast, the world did not know him. So notice how he made all things and now it's narrowing down to the world. And with this term world, he means humans. He means people. The world did not know him. And typically in John, the world has a negative connotation. This is the whole created order which has rebelled against its creator. This is how far off the rails things have gotten with the world. This is how deep into darkness things have plunged with the world. The one who created it comes into the world and the world doesn't know him. Unbelievable, right? Unbelievable. You've seen the videos, I'm sure, of a, a soldier who comes home and his dog just goes nuts with joy because he's finally seen his master again. He's jumping all over the place, wagging his tail. He knows his master. Well, how is it? How, how bad must things have gotten that when the creator of the universe comes, its master comes, we don't recognize him. The world doesn't know him. Unbelievable. It's not just a forgetfulness, though. It is an active rebellion against God. 
Romans 1 tells us people suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It is an active suppression of truth in unrighteousness. But if that's not bad enough, look what else it says. The world, the word came to his own and he received a, a similar response. The world rejected him, did not receive him. So you have the creator of all things coming to the world, all people enlightening every man, exposing every man, and then it gets even narrower. He came to his own. Well, what does this mean, his own? I think it harkens back to places in Scripture, Exodus 19.5 would be one of them, where God calls his people Israel his own possession. They are his. They belong to him. So the word, then again, it points us to the fact that this word is Yahweh. He is the almighty creator of all things. He came to his own possession, to those whom he had called out and made his own. This is speaking of the Jewish people. So imagine this then. These are the Jewish people who have had the covenants, had the promises, had a long history with Yahweh, the creator God of all things, and his own did not receive him. His own rejected him. As we turn to the last point, we see, however, that all is not lost. All is not doom and gloom. Although the world itself has rejected its creator, although his own has rejected him, some did receive him. We see the reception of the word in verses 12 and 13. But to those who did receive him, and to, but to those who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. Now the right power, the authority, he gave this right or authority. It's not that he gave all people the power to become children of God if they so choose to be, but he actually does this. He actually makes them heirs. He actually brings them into the family. This is the, the, the doctrine of adoption, that he gave them all the rights and privileges of sonship. He brought them into the family. Now, some have su suggested that this light coming into the world, he was the true light coming into the world, refers to God's revelation to his people throughout the Old Testament. But, as one scholar says, Raymond Brown if the revelation of the Old Testament empowered men to become children of God, the whole conversation with Nicodemus is unintelligible. We might even go further than that. The entire New Testament, the incarnation of the Word, and the Gospel itself is unintelligible and meaningless. John's whole point is that this is the fulfillment of what was promised in the Old Testament. That something more, that someone else was required in order to make humans a part of this rebellious created order, sons and daughters of the living God. Who are these people then who have received him? Who are these people who have not rejected this light who is coming into the world, but received him? Well, they are not, quote, his own. They are outside, in other words, of the Jewish people. This must then refer to Gentiles. 
those who are outside of the promises, those who are outside of the lineage of those chosen people of God, those, those Israelites. And this is an amazing thing. This is an amazing. This should blow our minds. Maybe a good idea of what's going on in the Jewish mind is, comes from the, the Harry Potter books. If you're familiar with those, they're these, these wizards. And often these, these wizards have what might be called pure blood. So they're, they're from a wizarding family. It goes back generations and generations and generations. And they view themselves as those who are really pure wizards. But they look down upon this other group who has mixed blood. They would call them mud bloods, which is a pejorative term for those who don't come from a wizarding family. Wasn't well, it funny how this doesn't just happen in books? This happens regularly in real life. That we can look down upon others as though they are less than because they don't come from our particular background or our particular country or nation or our particular culture. It happened with the Jews. And strangely enough, it happens with Gentiles who were outside of, of this, this line of peoples. It's easy in this case to, to think about how other people do that, though, isn't it? It's easy to think about those who are racist and those who uh, have their own nationalistic identity. But consider, brothers and sisters, how do you do this in other ways? How do you look down upon others because they are different from you? What do you use to push people down further? Than yourself. Christian faith is not a tribal faith. It's not a white man's religion. It's not, it's not having to do with one particular nationality. It's not an American faith. If we, if we change it into that, we're becoming just like the Jewish people who were to do that with the Gentiles. What we have here is Gentiles becoming children of God, which would be blasphemous to many Jews. Gentiles becoming the children of God. But again, they should have seen this. This is not unconnected to the promises of God in the Old Testament. The promises of God were not simply about Israel, but about the true Israel who will be gathered together in this one person. So in Isaiah 49, we read about the servant of the Lord. Now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, listen, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light to the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And Hosea 1.10, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said of them, Children of the living God. This is not only a people gathered to him, this is a people who have become the children of God. Adoption into the family of God 
as sons and daughters. He goes on, though. The author further describes those who have received him. It's really starting to get good here. Listen up. This is just amazing. Word of God filled with grace and truth just fills us with joy at what God has done for us. They are the believing ones in his name. Those who have received him, those are the believing ones in his name. This is the faith which John had bore witness for. This was the purpose that they might believe. And finally, here's the other contrast. They were not of bloods, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God born. So bloods, succeeding generations of pure lineage from the Jewish people. This is, not how, this is contrasted with how God gives birth. Not of the will of flesh, not of natural sexual means of procreation. The will of man, not by decision of man and his wife to have a child or children. All of these things are contrasted with the way God gives birth to these people. It is unconnected to biological heritage. Rather, it is a spiritual heritage. It is not natural, but it is supernatural. It is not by man's decision or will, but it is by the will of God. And it speaks to the grace of God, doesn't it? The grace of God. But what is the order here? What is the order? that We, we again have to make a decision about these two verses in particular, verses 12 and 13. How does this all work? Because some might say this is ambiguous. It doesn't really teach an order here about this birth and this faith and this reception of the word and this adoption into the family of God. Others would look at these verses and say, okay, we'll just follow along with the way that the verse reads. And they would say, first there's faith, there's this reception of the word, and then there is this birth as children of God. So in in that sense, the order is you believe and then God gives you the new birth. Right? You see that, how, how someone might come to that. This equates... Verses 12c and 13, do you see that? Verse 12c would be those who he gave the right to become children of God, and it would equate that with the birth of God. I'm going to take a different angle, if you might have guessed it. The order here is new birth, which then creates faith in the person, which then leads to their adoption as sons and daughters. Do you see that? There's a distinction between verses 12c, this adoption, and verse 13. 13, in other, uh, in another words, is the cause of 12a leading to 12c. 13, this new birth, is the cause of the reception of the word, faith in the word, which then leads to your adoption as sons and daughters of God. Why is this a big deal? Why do we have to make a decision about that? Well, first, it's taught in Scripture. We need to figure out what Scripture says and what Scripture means. But two, this makes us extremely God-centered in how we view our own faith. Where did your faith come from? Was it something in you? Was it, some, was it that you were more spiritually minded than your neighbor? Was it that you were more intellectual about this decision? You saw that it was a good deal, and so you figured you better take it. What was it in you that caused you to believe that fateful moment when you did come to faith? 
If it was something in you, then you might have something to boast about. Have you not? But if it came from God himself giving you new life, fulfilling the promises throughout the Old Testament, giving you a new heart, giving you birth by the Spirit, well then it is all completely of grace. Calvin says, however closely a man may examine himself, he will find nothing that is worthy of a child of God except what Christ has bestowed upon him. This is grace. This is pure grace to us that we who have rejected him in and of ourselves have been born of God have been given the grace in the first place to believe and to receive Him. This changes to how you see yourself. This changes everything. This changes how you see yourself. You are not righteous in yourself and you recognize that. You are not wiser. You're not more spiritual in and of yourself. Anything that you have is because you have received it from God. This changes how you see others, does it not? It changes first how you see unbelievers because they are too far gone to come to faith on their own. There's no reasoning them into the kingdom of God. There's no reasoning them into this, this birth. There's no emotional appeal you can make. They're too far gone. They can't, they can't decide on their own. And yet no one is ever too far gone to come to faith by the Spirit as God decides to give them the new birth. But it also changes, consider how it changes how you view other believers too. Have you ever looked upon someone and thought about them? It changes how you view other people, other believers in, in this church, in your neighborhood, friends and families who are believers. Have you ever looked upon someone else and thought, boy, I just wish that they were more loving like me? You could go down the list with the spiritual fruit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience. Why why aren't they as joyful as me? Why aren't they as patient as me? Why aren't they as self-controlled as I am? But if you're looking at it in that way, what are you doing? You're saying, these things have come from within me. These, there's something in me which makes me more joyful. There's something in me which makes me more patient or loving or peaceful. But when you recognize everything that you have, you have received. Well, then you just recognize without the Spirit of God doing those things in you, you wouldn't have them at all. Right? It produces such a deep humility in the people of God. And a deep gratitude that God has done this in us and for us. That we have nothing to claim for our own except for the grace that God has given us. So as you consider this passage, you, you might think, well, I, this, the application is either receive or, or reject him. And I've already received him, so what's the application for me? Well, it gives us it gives us has several applications for us 
He gives us first fuel for living in relation to other people. According to the fruit of the Spirit, with deep humility and gratitude for what God has done for us. If you recognize at any place in your own heart a lack of gratitude, it has to come from a lack of appreciation for the grace of God in Jesus Christ, for what He has done for you and in you and through you. But it also gives us a fuel for living in trials in the midst of this life. Because who are you, brothers and sisters in Christ? You are children of God. You are royalty. You are princes and princesses of the king of the universe. And this hasn't been disclosed yet. It's still, still waiting for its full disclosure when Jesus Christ comes. And what we shall be, we, we don't know. But when he comes, we know we shall be like him. For we shall see him face to face. This gives us fuel for living in the midst of trials, in tribulations, in this life of darkness and sin. This keeps us going forward. It causes us to recognize who we are in Christ. And finally, it gives us fuel for living in relation to God. As Jason said earlier to me, fuel for worship. How could you not consider the grace of God and it not lead to worshiping Him for this amazing, overwhelming grace from God. Let it fuel your worship as you you think about this, as you meditate on this, as you behold what love God has given to us that we should be called the sons and daughters of God. Let it fuel your worship. As we close in, in a time of prayer, let's just let's bask in this, this grace of God. Just meditate upon this grace of God that He has given us in Christ Jesus. Let's pray silently for just a moment and give thanks to God.